is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, from the arts to commerce to history, and sometimes, well, sometimes some tough stories and some sad stories about loss, eulogies, and then, well, whatever happened to whomever? Whatever happened to that guy, that girl, that actor, that actress, that musician? We love those stories, too, and this is one of them. Like his spectacular passes and jaw-dropping runs, Michael Vick's path of redemption, well, it seemed endless. His life, it was a dance between triumph and trouble on and off the field. This four-time Pro Bowl quarterback was the most thrilling player of a generation, and he became the most reviled. Vick grew up in the roughest part of Newport News, Virginia, also known as Bad News. Michael lived in the Ridley Circle housing projects where gangs, drugs, and pit bulls were just white noise. It was here where he witnessed two local boys become professional athletes, NFL quarterback Aaron Brooks and NBA All-Star Allen Iverson. Vic knew football was his way out. By 2004, at the age of 24, Vic was the NFL's main attraction, Atlanta Falcons owner Arthur Blank rewarded Vic with a record $130 million contract. His dad, he didn't pay any attention to the kids. You know, I did everything. My dad liked to run the streets. You know, my dad liked to do his thing. My dad really went down the wrong path. Growing up with a dad that was on drugs, that was abusive to his mother. It's some things that he probably wanted from that relationship, but just couldn't get. It's like, is this the role that I take in life? Is this the role that I want to take in life? With the uh, first selection in the 2001 NFL Draft, the Atlanta Falcons select Michael Vick, quarterback, Virginia Tech. Oh, baby, the Vick era is here. There's just not that many that can play quarterback the way he could play quarterback. Oh, what a throw by Vic! It just looked like something out of a video game. Out there freestyling, just doing crazy things. This guy is a big-time player. He was just so much faster than anybody else on that field. I'm sure when he was a kid who played tag, he was never it. like having Barry Sanders back there as your quarterback. The most dynamic, athletic quarterback that there ever was. And almost being like a, a superhero, you know, in the town that needed the superhero. You have just seen Michael Jordan of the NFL. This guy had everything. And he risked it all and ended up losing it all because he wanted to have dogs fight against each other. What planet are we on? I have a developing story to tell our viewers about right now. I was actually on the golf course in Atlanta. Yeah. Oh my gosh, look at that thing. Right down the middle, good job, Mike. Well, my best friend called me and told me I knew it was over. You know, the things that I was trying to hide for so many years or thought I could get away with uh, was now coming to light. How could a football star making literally millions of dollars allegedly get involved in something like this? Alec 
allegations of hanging, shooting, body slamming, even electrocuting dogs to death as part of a multi-state underground dog fighting operation. Is a record-breaking NFL superstar, a former number one draft pick, losing a $120 million contract over dog fights? Michael Vick pled guilty to federal dogfighting charges. Approximately six to eight dogs were killed by various methods, including hanging and drowning, and then buried on the property. 66 pit bulls were saved. Michael Vick spent two months in Northern Neck Regional Jail in Richmond, Virginia, and another 16 months in Leavenworth Federal Prison. And then he was released. Well, recently, Michael Vick was invited to speak at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. It is here where Vick tells his story. It's the story of a man who seemed to have everything and then had to start from nothing all over again. Vick's story starts with his childhood and the moment he knew he had a special gift to play football. My upbringing was like, you know, probably like 70% of uh, most, you know, African-American young kids. You know, I grew up in poverty, um, you know, very poverty-stricken area, um, you know, surrounded by a lot of friends, a lot of things going on in the neighborhood that I grew up in, a lot of influences. You know, just the ordinary lifestyle, you know, of a, of a you know, young black kid, um, but, you know, with aspirations. I knew I had a gift, you know, when I was about seven years old. Like, every day my motivation was to go outside and, you know, do something better to try to better myself at the game that I love at such a young age. And uh, I didn't understand my passion, you know, back then when I was when I was that young. I just wanted to have fun doing it. But everybody around me always, you know, told me that I looked different from everybody else. And I think it was because, you know, at a young age, I always practiced. Michael Vick knew that in order to have a life that was going to be different than those who grew up around him, he had to be different. His grandmother offered him some wisdom. I know it was a lot of challenges growing up in the neighborhood that I was in, and, you know, I always felt like, you know, I needed an edge. I needed to have a different visualization of what everybody else in the neighborhood did. I wanted to be different. You know, even though we grew up together, even though we all ran together, had fun together, I wanted to be different, so... You know, my aspirations was to make it to the NFL. And I told my grandmother that at a young age, and I told her I would do anything to get there. And she told me, if you're going to be successful in life, you, got to, you have to find God at some point. And, you know, that always stuck with me. So I'm like, at a young age, I'm like, what can I do to incorporate God into my life? When I don't know, I really know anything about, you know, God or, you know, the Bible or how to interpret it. And I just came to the conclusion, I just put the Bible under my pillow and sleep with it under my pillow until something good happened. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, a life, well, lost and then gained. Michael Vick's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of Michael Vick. The rest of the story, as most of you probably have heard about his athletic prowess and how he squandered it all, I'm sure you heard what he did to those dogs. And you hated him for it, because the country hated this guy. And so we had just heard from him at a church, and this was him telling his story to the, the people in that church, and he's going around the country telling his story now to young people, old people, anyone who will listen. Actually, how did you get there, right? How do you get from being the highest paid athlete in NFL history to killing dogs? And what's going on in your head that you'd allow that to happen? We just heard about the advice his grandmother had given him, that if you want to be successful in life, you've got to bring God into your life. Well, let's return to Michael Vick and his story. He was the star quarterback in high school and chose Virginia Tech as the college that would launch him as a star. But like all great QBs, Vick had a backup. A plan A and a plan B. Plan B, I wanted to uh, major in criminology. It was really my backup plan. My plan was plan A. I was to make it, you know, to make it to the NFL. And, you know, I was so determined to do whatever it took to make that happen that I couldn't see my plan B. So my determination was so strong that I wouldn't allow anything to come into my life to negate that. After reaching the highest heights of Plan A, Vic fell to the unimaginable Plan Z, a life in prison. He left behind his wife and his three kids. Well, I think I lost focus. Um, and it's so easy to do. You know, you, you, you feel like you, you know, once you receive all these blessings, you feel like you've arrived. And I, I can honestly say I felt as if there was nothing else that needed to be done, but I, I lost sight of Everything that got me to that point, you know, my beliefs, you know, no more sleeping with the Bible under the pillow, no more saying my prayers at night. My, my grandmother instilled that in my brothers and sisters and my entire family. You know, ask God for something that you, you really want, and you never know when you may get it. And I did that all the way up until I was drafted. Uh, once I got drafted, you know, I started living a different life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't rigorous. It wasn't, you know, crazy. You know, I, I did everything to try to make sure I, you know, did what I was supposed to do. And at the same time, I had, you know, I was straddling the fence. You know, I always told myself I didn't want to be a product of my environment. I always wanted my environment to be a product of me. But at the same time, I brought some of those same values with me. When I turned 23, 24, and I had some money, and I was able to, you know, just do anything that I wanted to do and, you know, lost focus and, and uh, ended up ending up ended up in prison. Vic responded to the notion that his punishment was due to discrimination. You know, first and foremost, you know, we all got to make decisions. And I think that's what, you know, I had every right to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. And it, it's so easy to do the wrong thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's the easiest thing to do. You know, it's hard when you got to make a decision based on, um, you know, a positive outcome. And, you know, I had influences around me, but... You know, I think as a grown man at 24 years old and, you know, everything that I received in my life, you know, I was supposed to take a step back and really look at my life as a whole and the people that I affected and the people that, you know, really cared about me. You know, I lot the Atlanta Falcons organization, you know, my mom and dad, um, my co college coaches, you know, anybody who, you know, put time and effort into me and, and la you know, last of all, you know, God. The reason I really was in the position, the reason I'm here today. It's the easiest thing to do, the wrong thing. 
It's just the easiest thing to do. And that's all of us, folks. Vic also said that, well, losing his freedom was tough. Quote, I still think I went to prison because there were certain people I needed to get away from. So it was bigger than dogfighting. It was done to bring awareness to bad. It was done to show that regardless of who you are, you will get punished and you are not above the law. And for me, it was a message of don't lose sight of how you got here. Stay humble. Here's Vic on day one in prison. When I first got into prison, when they first uh, closed the door, it was like um, it was like a dream. And, you know, at that point, I felt like everything in, in life, you know, has to have an expiration date that's not positive. The things that I was doing, I was not going to stop. So that was my expiration date when that door closed. You know, I, I wanted to get out so bad. It was, not, it was out of my control. You know, and the only thing I could do was just kind of, you know, look up and think about what I had done and, you know, kind of ask God to forgive me for what I had done and ask God to help me. And I wanted it all right then. I, I, every time the, the God came to the door and put the key in the door, I was hoping that there was somebody that was coming in to free me. And that was just the first day, you know, and I... <laughs> That was the first day. <laughs> I ended up doing 465 more after that. My goodness. But Prison was his expiration date. Uh, that is, of course, the old Michael Vick. He looked to God, but it didn't take long for him to realize that God wasn't going to unlock his cell and live his life for him. Vick realized his life required personal responsibility and obedience. You know, I always looked at myself as, you know, God's child, you know, I'm praying at night, like saying the hardest prayers that I can pray. But I know it's a mutual respect and a relationship that you have to have with God. You know, I, I didn't want to disrespect that relationship and put a strain on it. So, I, you know, I just told myself I got to be patient. You know, those doors are not going to open when I want them to. And, you know, I have to, you know, put my focus on things that's going to be positive reinforcement when I get out. And, you know, it wasn't until then when, I opened, when they opened the doors and they let me out. You know, it was a new era for me, you know, in my whole walk. Vic discussed overcoming life's obstacles. It was so far-fetched, you know, because all you hear about is the reasons that you can't make it. You know, you know you're small, you know, you, you know the, the NFL doesn't, um, you know, have, they have a limited number of black quarterbacks, you know, which is, you know, something that, you know, is, is, should be overlooked. And something that I wanted to change, and, and, I, and I did. And I was, I was just kind of able to just shift my focus to, you know, doing all the right things, and I did it. But just in the position that I was in, why would you, why would you risk that? Why would you sacrifice that um, for things that, you know, really didn't make no sense or was morally wrong? And, you know, so I'd look at it in that sense. You know, I felt like I should have been more of a mature person and, and was, should have been able to not be a product of my environment, which I didn't want to be. Here are some things that have changed about post-prison Michael Vick and what his plans are post-football. You know, I try to think before I speak. I try to think before I react. Um, I try to weigh all the options, pros and cons, before any decision is made on anything in my life. You know, I think I'm a better teacher, you know, starting with my kids. And, you know, a better leader, you know, in the locker room. And just, you know, with my overall family, I feel like I'm responsible for them. And every decision that they make, I want it to be a reflection of themselves and a reflection of me. So that's a 
great responsibility within itself. Um, and I feel like it's, it's more out there for me. I feel like football was just only a facet of my life, and I was able to accomplish that goal. And I think it's time to kind of put that to rest and try to figure out what my, you know, my next calling is. And I'm just going to let it flow. I'm going to let it come. I'm not going to rush it. I'm not going to ask God to give it all to me at one time. I'm going to just let it happen. And he's letting it happen. And again, this talk was at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And he's showing up at churches and gatherings around the country. And I think it's almost going to be a ministry of sorts for him, talking to young men about their choices, especially when they get blessings, because that's when you can really just throw everything away. And talking about that environment, and you don't have to be a product of your environment. It's nonsense. You can actually affect the environment. And you've got to teach people this. Or, well, what other options are there for them? Michael Vick's story, by the way, after serving his sentence, he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles in 2009. As a member of the Eagles for five years, he enjoyed the greatest statistical season of his career and was named to the fourth Pro Bowl in 2010. His official retirement from professional football came in 2017, and he was immediately hired by Fox Sports as an analyst for Fox NFL kickoff. Michael Vick's story, by the way, we just love because... Well, if you believe in redemption and you don't have to be a person of faith to believe in it, uh, then you're rooting for people when they, when they make bad decisions. And here on this show, we root for people all the way through, all the way down the line. This is Lee Habib, Michael Vick's story, a story of redemption, of love, and we'll be bringing you more like it here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do Share it with friends. And if you have stories like this in your life, and I know you do, you just do. Share them. Don't be ashamed of them. Share them. Share them loud. Own your failures. Own your mistakes. It makes you more human. It allows you to connect with your fellow man. Again, this is Our American Story. our American stories and we like telling the stories about all kinds of people the good the bad the ugly and the bizarre which brings us to our supreme executive producer and chief proprietor of strategic irrelevance and irreverence Jesse Edwards with a story that is sure to tantalize all of your senses about an old school hacker take it away This is the story of a guy known as Captain Crunch. His real name is John Draper. He's legendary in the world of computer programming and hacking. 
the son of an Air Force engineer who himself joined in 1964. While stationed in Alaska, he helped his fellow servicemen make free phone calls home by devising access to a local telephone switchboard. If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again. Now, in case there are any young people listening, back before we all had smartphones, we used landlines. Or phones that were attached to the wall by wiring. If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator. And you even had to pay more money to make long-distance calls, God forbid. After the Air Force, John Draper was trying to test the signal strength of one of his own pirate radio stations when he broadcast the phone number for listeners to call in to report the strength of his signal. Well, he got a response from a group of blind kids who told him about a special whistle that could be found inside boxes of Cap'n Crunch breakfast cereal. Here's John Draper. Well, my claim to fame is... Comes out of a Captain Crunch whistle box. If you hold up one of the holes like this and blow it, that's 2600 hertz tone. That 2600 hertz tone is what controls the AT&T American telephone system. And it was developed way back in the 50s. Got started from this, really. And I learned about the phone company system and the switching tones, and I got a Captain Crunch whistle from one of the kids. So what kind of mysterious power did this little whistle have over the national phone system? John Draper gives us a basic demonstration. With this, you want to dial a number, you call up a, 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 like a, a 555-1212 information number, which is free, and, and then you blow it like this. And that just basically is the same thing as hanging up. You're hanging up on a trunk level, and you go a little ka-ching sound, and then if you want to dial two, you go one three, and you dial a number. And that was basically how you make free phone calls. That's pretty impressive. In a time when you had to pay for phone calls, this guy figured out a way to hack the system with a whistle that came out of a Captain Crunch box. So next, Draper created the Blue Box, an electronic device that would recreate tones similar to this whistle. So I built a prototype of a Blue Box at home. I couldn't believe it. It worked. My parents thought I'd gone stark raving mad. And you can do just about anything with a blue box you can do as an operator. You can call other operators, you can call routing codes, you can tap phone lines, you can route calls all over the world by you just knowing what the routing codes are. And you can stack tandems. So once a long distance call had been initiated and the phone company heard the 2600 hertz tone, it terminated the call, but only at one end. Now the person at the open end of the line with the special whistle or the blue box had all the power of the telephone company operator. They could call anywhere free of charge in the world, or they could tie up phone lines of an entire city by stacking the lines. Here's a demonstration. The number that's ringing at this point doesn't matter. What's important is that this call has gone over a trunk from New York to a distant 4A, which can be reset by 2600. That's the supervision handshake, off-hook, on-hook. And now it's waiting for new digits, which Ben will supply. That's the sound of Youngstown, Ohio, dumping us into a trunk to Canton. And that's the handshake from Canton. Now we're in Youngstown again, which... stacks into Canton, and then Canton... gives us the handshake. 
While the implications of this now ancient technology might be lost on some of us now, back then it caught the attention of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. What happened basically at this point, um, the blind kids got a hold of somebody from Esquire magazine article. There was actually this guy, Don Ballinger, who got busted using blue boxes and uh, got real bitter toward the phone company and wanted to blow the whistle on the phone company and let everybody know about it. And uh, the phone freaks found out about it and they contacted Don Ballinger, which is a bad mistake, and they told him about me. And then they wrote this Esquire magazine article called The Secrets of the Little Blue Box, October 1971 issue. And uh, Steve Wozniak got a hold of the magazine and uh, showed it to Jobs. And Steve says, let's build them and make them and sell them. <laughs> so that's what they did. In fact, Steve Jobs' first job, or at least his first business, was selling blue boxes, the device that allowed users to get free phone service illegally. Not only that, but you could hack communication centers all over the world with the technology. Here's Steve Jobs. You could, you know, call from a, a payphone, uh, go to White Plains, New York, take a satellite to Europe, take a cable to Turkey, uh, come back to Los Angeles, uh, and you go around the world three or four times and call the payphone next door and shout in the phone, and be about 30 seconds and come out the other end of the, the other phone. So we actually, and these were illegal, I, I have to add, uh, but in spite of that, we were so fascinated by them that Waz and I actually figured out how to build one. We built the best one in the world. It was the first digital blue box in the world. And uh, we would uh, give them to our friends and use them ourselves. And You know, you, you rapidly run out of people you want to call. But it was, the, it was the magic of the fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in the entire telephone network in the whole world. But it seems like all fun and illegal things like this eventually come to an end. John Draper, Captain Crunch, got busted. I got busted because somebody was using Waz's blue box, phone company detected it, and the person had my phone number and abused my privilege and wrote my phone number down, and that was how I got busted. Otherwise, I would have been pretty, pretty safe even today because I was very careful. Captain Crunch ended up serving two prison sentences for phone fraud. While serving a third prison sentence, Draper set to creating the Easy Rider, the first word processor for the Apple II. While out on work release, he had access to a computer in a small studio, though sometimes he needed to take copies of his work home to prison so he could continue working on it. We're sorry. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. But the phone hacking mischief didn't end there for our old friend John Draper here. After prison, he made a fascinating discovery while scanning 800 numbers. Maybe two or three years later, and uh, discovered a very interesting phone number. Uh, it was an 800 number that uh, later I discovered it to be the White House CIA crisis hotline number. And... Uh, there was a way to tap lines back then, so we'd sit in on the line and listen to it for a while, and it was on an unencrypted link. And uh, somebody said, Olympus, please. And the voice on the other end sounded remarkably like Nixon. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I wrote down Olympus, and two weeks later I went to a party and somebody wanted me to trade. Uh, somebody had this really cool number, I wanted it. And phone freaks like to trade numbers. So I said, uh, I'll trade you a number. Would you like to have the 
the CIA crisis hotline of the White House, and he says, you got what? <laughs> so I gave him the number. But before I even had a chance to give him the number, he'd already stacked two or three, ten, two or three trunks in there calling the number, and he got, got him on the line, and uh, he said, uh, sir, we have a national crisis on our hands here. He says, what's the nature of the crisis? He says, sir, we're out of toilet paper. They hung up. <laughs> First instance of punking uh, the president. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. And that's phone freaking extraordinaire, the one and only Captain Crunch, John Draper. This is Our American Stories. And thank you as always, Jesse. As odd... And irreverent, as always, John Draper's story, Captain Crunch's story, here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories. Now it's time to visit a piece of American folklore and to separate fact from fiction in the tale of Robert Johnson at the crossroads. Here's Jesse. Many of us have heard the story of a young black man who went down to the crossroads at midnight, somewhere in Mississippi, looking to make a deal with the devil in exchange for superhero-like guitar powers. Legend has it that it all went down at the intersection of 61 and 49 in Clarksdale. It's a busy intersection for a small town. On an island in the middle of the intersection, three big blue guitars with a sign underneath that says, The Crossroads. This is where all the maps and postcards say it is. But is it really the same crossroads that all those songs were written about? If you ask that question around here, you get a lot of different answers. Some people insist it's here in Clarksdale. Others say it's down the road, closer to the Mississippi River and Rosedale at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1. But some people around here say that the original crossroads is out in the country, just a few miles east of Cleveland, Mississippi, just south of an old cotton plantation. At its peak, Dockery had around 3,000 workers. While they weren't exactly employees by today's standards... They weren't exactly slaves, either. The plantation was established in 1895. The owner, Will Dockery, built a reputation for treating people fairly by offering contracts to laborers. Some became sharecroppers, who would work a portion of the land in return for a share of the crop. Now, the Dockeries were unusual. Mr. Will did not run the blues singers off. Most plantations, when a blues singer showed up, uh, the idea was that everybody was going to get drunk and they were going to swap girlfriends and stab each other. And so the plantation owners didn't want that. They wanted these men to come to work on Monday morning, so they would run them off. Mr. Will didn't do that. Now, we don't know why exactly he didn't do that, but I like to think um, that since he was not only a generous man, but uh, he expected and wanted the best from people, I think that, that he wanted them to have some sort of entertainment, something to do, you know, and, and because it was so... Um, what's a good word, plain here then, because with no radio, no TV, no other form of entertainment, uh, you know, these people, the only thing they could hear during the week would be lightning and hummingbirds, 
uh, and thunder and, uh, and the wind in the trees. And so all of a sudden these wild bluesmen would show up uh, and they had an isolated, controlled group of people that they could control with this bridge. It was a fully self-sustained community with its own railroad terminal, general store, post office, school, doctor, and church. They used the watering trough for baptism. A hundred mules could drink it dry in one hour, 25 mules at a time. But the thing that makes it so important is that when they, people first moved here uh, and they got baptized in the river, once in a while one of them would get eaten by an alligator or, or get bit by a snake. So I just assume that most people when they get baptized don't want to meet God on the same day that they get baptized. So they moved and started baptizing in this mule water trough because it was clean, clear, pretty water. And so hundreds and hundreds of people were baptized there. I still have numerous people every year in their 80s and 90s come back here to want to see where they were baptized as children. This is the, uh, the birthplace of the blues? Well, you know, B.B. King came here in 1973 and stood in front of the seed house and said if you had to pick one spot, he said, you might as well say it all started right here. And what I think he meant was, uh, obviously he's dead and we can't ask him anymore, but what I think he meant was uh, that probably no one knows where the first blues note was written or the first blues song or the first blues lick, but so much of the education of the blues went on here at Dockery because Charlie Patton came here as a child. You see, Charlie Patton was born in Hines County, Mississippi, near the town of Edwards, and lived most of his life in Sunflower County in the Mississippi Delta. Now, most sources say that he was born in April of 1891, but the years 1881, 1885, and 1887 have also been suggested. In the year 1900, his parents, Bill and Annie Patton, moved the family to Dockery seeking better treatment and better pay. A lot of Mississippi blues men came through to make money playing music, and eventually, many of them would show up just to hear young Charlie Patton play guitar. Charlie learned how to play the guitar from... Uh... Henry Sloan. Henry Sloan, a few years later, got on the train and went to Chicago and never came back again. And so Charlie picked up from there and began to play all over the Delta and was one of the earliest recorded blues singers. But look who came here to play with Charlie. Uh, Howlin' Wolf was a child here. Uh, Charlie taught him how to play the guitar here. Pop Staples of the famous Staples singers from Chicago was a child here. Charlie taught him everything he needed to know about being Pop Staples, he claims. He told Robert Palmer that and uh, when Robert wrote the book Deep Blues in 1950, he interviewed Howlin' Wolf, he interviewed Pops, he interviewed all of them that were still alive, and they all said that they came here to play with Charlie to learn the different um, licks and to see what was new. Uh, Willie Brown played here with Charlie a lot. He was his running buddy, and Eric Clapton says there are things that Willie Brown can do that no human can do now unless they could see Willie live do it. So, you know, it must be pretty difficult what Willie did. And so then Willie went on to play with Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson obviously got influenced by Charlie through Willie because they played together. Uh, Willie played with Charlie first for a number of years, and then they had a falling out over a woman, I'm told, and then he went to be with uh, Robert because Robert was the next big up-and-coming star, and so he wanted he was a backup guitarist. This place was important for blues musicians back in the day because there were a lot of people out here in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do with their free time and they were being paid in the plantation's own coins. What they would do is play for free, any of them, here at the commissary. There were no juke joints in the Delta at the turn of the century, you know that, I mean. A juke joint is another term for a nightclub here in the South. There were some in New Orleans, some in Memphis, but the Delta was cut and dry, life and death. 
You know, there was just nothing like that here. And so these bluesmen weren't stupid. What they did was they paid these people at this house, and they called it a frolicking house. They paid them to move all the furniture out of the house on Saturday afternoon. The bluesmen had bought giant mirrors for each wall. Remember, no indoor potties, no electricity, no radios, no fans, no air conditioning, no nothing. Had absolutely nothing. So these giant mirrors would be on every wall in this house, even though it was a small house. If they were two rooms, they'd be eight mirrors. They would put a coal oil lantern in front of each mirror at dark and raise the windows. That house would look like it's on fire compared to all the rest of them, which were pitch black dark. People couldn't even afford kerosene back then. And so the bluesmen would play for free on the commissary front porch, walk across the one-lane bridge. That's the perfect setup because they'd have takers right here. They wouldn't let you across the bridge unless you paid 25 cents to come to the frolicking house. So a 1,000 grown men at 25 cents, you know, you just came from Oxford, right? I graduated from Ole Miss twice over there. Some people say that means I can't read and write, but I can count. And that's 250 bucks a night. And a brand new car in 1915 didn't cost but $210. So Charlie Patton was making enough money to buy a brand new car every Saturday night when he played, if he played at a big place like this. Aside from good money, there was something else that made Dockery plantations so popular with musicians. Will Dockery builds a railroad leading in and out of the plantation in order to feed thousands of people. One day, a young man by the name of Robert Johnson rolled into Will Dockery's plantation with a guitar on his back looking to play some songs for money. He couldn't play as good, and they had probably been drinking a little bit and all that, and so they acted ugly to him and told him he was probably a worthless uh, guitar player. So what did he do? He took his wounds and went down to the depot down here and licked his wounds all night and, 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 and paced back and forth. The train didn't come to the next morning. And that's where all the old people at Dockery said this story took place. And that he paced around at the, at the crossroads and supposedly could play better the next day. I've been down there a bunch of times and my hair ain't turned black and I can't play the guitar. <laughs> so I'm not sure that the devil resides down at the crossroads. What Howlin' Wolf tells us what really happened. Howlin' Wolf says he got on the train here at Dockery, rode to Hazelhurst, because he had been down there before, got off on the platform. There was a woman he took a fancy to that was 25 years older than him took a fancy to her, married her that same day, and started performing there and, and, and ran into a man named Ike Zimmerman, who was a minstrel player from the East Coast. It was in Hazelhurst. He listened to him play, asked him to play again. He couldn't play the same song twice exactly. So Ike told him, he said, you'll never be worth nothing unless you can play everything perfectly in three minutes because recordings don't last longer than three minutes. So he said, you got to get tight. You got to tighten up. So... What did Robert do? Robert stayed in Hazelhurst almost a year. So, supposedly it was overnight, but it really took a year of hard work. Got tired of that 25-year-old woman, divorced her, got back on the train, stepped off at Dockery, and he could play everything perfectly in three minutes, his whole repertoire. But it's easy to see how these stories can get blown way out of proportion. The story isn't even native to Mississippi. It just happened to stick with Robert Johnson because he became famous. You know what else isn't native to Mississippi? The slide guitar. Just look up a picture of Charlie Patton. You'll see his hand reaching up over the top of the neck to play the slide for a reason. Well, this is the only known picture of Charlie Patton. But the most interesting thing about the picture, he's playing in the Hawaiian style. And the Hawaiians came here to the Delta. You remember, no radios, no TVs in the 1880s, nothing. And so these Hawaiians came here because they could make tons of money by playing for all these people out in the country. And so they brought the slide 
and they played on top of their guitar. And so he was influenced by the Hawaiians. He had to see them as a child, you know, and, and was influenced in that wah, 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 wah. You know, we're never going to really find the crossroads. But we did find the birthplace of the blues, and we did find where Robert Johnson really learned how to play the guitar. And it didn't even cost him his soul. For Our American Stories in Mississippi, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse, and we love doing music stories. We broadcast out of Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. And this story, well, it hits close to home here for all the people who love the blues here and around the world. The Crossroads story, Robert Johnson's story, here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We will produce them, and we will play them back. They are some of our favorites, the American people. You, our listeners, are terrific writers and storytellers. In the annals of American capitalism, there is probably no crazier wilder, more chaotic boom-to-bust-and-back-again phenomenon than the Comstock load in the 1860s, the richest couple of square miles on Earth. This small section of dirt changed the destiny of the United States. Here to tell this rags-to-riches frontier tale is Old West historian Roger McGrath. McGrath is a professor in Southern California and the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Here's Roger. If ever there were real-life figures who could have been characters in a Horatio Alger novel, it was the Silver Kings. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien, and James Flood epitomized the rags-to-riches American dream. John Mackey is the engineering genius of the Silver Kings. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to New York in 1840. He reaches the California gold fields in 1851. He enjoys hard physical work and mining camp life. He has almost no formal education and had stuttered badly when young, but he is blessed with extraordinary intelligence. James Fair is a mine superintendent without peer and a shrewd financier. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to Illinois during the early 1840s. He has enormous energy, a trenchant mind, and a natural aptitude for all things mechanical. He joins the gold rush to California in 1849. William O'Brien is born in Ireland in 1826 and brought to New York as a small child. By the time he joins the gold rush of 49, he has grown into a large man of erect carriage. He will soon have a head of prematurely white hair. His size, posture, and hair give him a dignified appearance. Unlike his partners, he is soft-spoken, with an avuncular, kindly quality about him. He is the least forceful of the Silver Kings, but his gregarious and genial nature make him the most popular 
and ideal for public relations. James Flood is the only Silver King not to have been born in Ireland. He's born in New York in 1826, shortly after his Irish immigrant parents arrive. He catches the gold fever in 1849 and sails around the Horn to California. He has a quick wit, a shrewd mind, a volatile temper, and a powerful drive to succeed. He is a genius in trading stocks and in finance. Mackie Fair, O'Brien, and Flood all spend the early 1850s prospecting and mining in California, and each has some success. With his earnings from the diggings, O'Brien opens a marine supply store in San Francisco. Flood, with the money he has made, opens a livery and carriage shop just down the street from O'Brien. Both lose their businesses, though, in the Depression of 1855. They then join forces and open a saloon. O'Brien reasons the only thing that does not go down in a depression is the consumption of alcohol. He's right, and their saloon thrives. Flood handles the business end of the operation while O'Brien greets customers and serves roast beef sandwiches that come complimentary with a drink. By the early 1860s, Flood and O'Brien are dabbling in mining stock, buying and selling shares in mines that tap into the great Comstock load in Nevada. Flood has an uncanny ability in stock trading. Within a few years, he and O'Brien amass a small fortune. In 1868, they open their own stock brokerage office in San Francisco. Mackey and Fair, working separately, also spend the early 1850s prospecting in California. Here's Comstock Load historian Ronald James speaking to us at the location of the historic Comstock Load strike. The first miners who came here were after gold. Gold's easy. Gold doesn't combine with many things, so you can actually even pick it out of, the, of their washed dirt with tweezers and you hope for a nugget, but you find little flakes of gold. And that's how you can pull the gold out. What they weren't expecting was anything else that would be valuable. The two miners who were coming up here, a couple of Irish immigrants, were just looking for a good place to, to dam up a, a natural spring so they could get water because they were placer mining like the original California gold miners of, the, of 1849. And they were hoping that they could find some water, throw some dirt into their uh, long toms, which were these wooden boxes, and wash the dirt. While they were damming a natural spring they found, which was right up here, they started throwing some of the dirt in there and found immediately that they were uncovering several ounces of gold. And it was a very good day, and it was the first of many good days. In fact, 20 years worth of good days. They were complaining for those first few weeks after the strike in June of 1859. These early miners complained about this blue mud that gummed up their works because as you wash away the lighter soil, it leaves gold behind, but it was also leaving behind this blue mud that was really obnoxiously heavy and it was hard to separate it from the, from the gold. So after several weeks, they took a, an ore sample over to California and said, what exactly do we have here? And what they found was that it, if you had a ton of this stuff, it would produce over $800 in gold when gold was selling for $16 an ounce. But what was really surprising that it was that it would produce over $3,000 in silver when silver was selling for $1.60 an ounce. And so that's really where everyone understood just how wealthy this ore body, or using the Cornish word load, was. And then it became known as the Comstock load. 
When they learn of the Comstock Lode strike at Virginia City, they head over the Sierras to Nevada. The people who came to the Comstock were an international body of, of people. Nevada actually had, in, in the 1870 census, more foreign-born per capita than any other state in the nation, you know, more than the great immigrant states of, you think of Massachusetts and Boston and New York and how vibrantly international those places were, Chicago. A lot of Europeans, obviously, a large group of Chinese uh, lived in, in, here. Uh, they, they came from all over. They often arrived as single men. And so it, it was a, a very masculine community. And when we come back, more on the lives of these four risk takers, James Flood, John Mackey, James Fair, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. The story of the Comstock Lode continues here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories and the story of John Mackey, James Fair, James Flood, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. Let's pick up with Roger McGrath, where we last left off. Mackey works as a pick and shovel miner for $4 a day, then as a timberman for 6 Soon he develops his own business, excavating and fortifying tunnels. Much of his pay is in the form of stock certificates. Now, most of these prove worthless, but a few give him enough money to buy the Kentuck, a mine whose ore has supposedly been exhausted. Mackey sinks a new shaft in the Kentuck and hits a rich deposit. During the next several years, the mine pays over a million dollars in dividends, huge money in the 1860s. Mackey also has said he will retire as soon as he has 25,000 in the bank. Well, now he has many times that, but his appetite has only been whetted for new adventures and enterprises. While Mackey is working the Kentuck, James Fair becomes superintendent of the Ufer, one of the richest mines on the Comstock. In 1868, he enters into a partnership to develop new mining properties with Mackey. I'm standing at the base of the Ofer pit, and they called it Ofer after Ophir, the gold mine of King Solomon in the Old Testament. By asserting that this was the Ophir mine, they were claiming that this was a mine of biblical proportions. And they got it right, because hundreds of millions of dollars came out of the ground beginning right here. Back in San Francisco, Jim Flood and Bill O'Brien take notice of these two young upstarts on the Comstock. Soon they are discussing joining forces and in 1869, the San Francisco stockbrokers and the Comstock miners form a partnership. By the early 1870s, through wise investments and daring gambles, the four Irishmen are challenging William Ralston of the Bank of California for control of the Comstock. In 1872, they buy the Consolidated Virginia Mine for $100,000 from Ralston's right-hand man in Virginia City, William Sharon. Sharon gleefully reports to Ralston the Irishmen have been taken. The Consolidated Virginia, says Sharon, is a bankrupt piece of property. 
Over a million dollars has already been wasted in the mine in fruitless exploration. Mackie and Fair have a hunch if they cut a new tunnel at a deeper level, they will hit a vein of ore. For several months, they tunnel, pouring 200,000 into the consolidated Virginia, but hoisting up nothing but worthless rock. William Sheeran roars with laughter. Then one day, Mackie and Fair hit a delicately thin vein of ore. They try to follow it, but it disappears. They find it again, but again it disappears. They find it a third time. This time the vein begins to widen, to a foot, to several feet, to a half dozen feet, to 12 feet. Mackie and Fair send word to Flood and O'Brien in San Francisco. The stockbrokers quickly buy up as much outstanding consolidated Virginia stock as they can. The deeper the new shaft is sunk in the consolidated Virginia, the wider the vein becomes. At the 1,500 foot level, the vein is more than 50 feet wide. The ore is so rich, waste rock has to be added to it to put it through the stamp mill. The Irishmen have discovered the very heart of the Comstock load, what is called the Big Bonanza. For the rest of their lives, they are known as the Silver Kings. Here again is Ronald James. In 1873, they found what was called the Big Bonanza, which was a, a, a huge deposit of gold and silver that if Virginia City wasn't famous before, and it was, it then was permanently famous. And I'm not sure without the Big Bonanza, we would have the Cartwrights and the, and the television show Bonanza. Here, the, the Comstock load, the combination of gold and silver, started expanding as they went underground to five feet, 10 feet, and at its, at its widest, up to 60 feet wide of nearly pure gold and silver. I mean, obviously mixed it with some rock, but you had, to, you had to dig it all out. You couldn't stop doing that. The problem is you cannot find a log stout enough to span 60 feet, even 20 feet without snapping, because it has to hold up a mountain, and mountains want to collapse in on empty space. So. They brought in a German immigrant by the name of Philip Didesheimer, who developed the square set timbering method. And it was basically a series of cubes that uh, could be in modular fashion added to so that whatever the stope, the empty space left over when you dug out all the gold and silver, whatever that stope was shaped like, you could fill it up with a stout framework of timber and then you would fill it back with waste rock as you dug even deeper in, inside the mine. So it was a really nice, stable way to support a mine as you were pursuing precious metals. And that was exported throughout the world. It's only the first of many inventions, flat wire cable, the safety cage. This was the first place where uh, dynamite was experimented with in a big way underground. Uh, it was the first place where uh, uh, air compressed drills were used. Uh, so it became one invention after the next that defined international underground mining for the next 50 or 60 years. By 1875, the Silver Kings are fabulously wealthy. The Consolidated Virginia is paying dividends of a million dollars a month, something like a hundred million in today's money. San Francisco is seized by a speculative mania. If the Consolidated Virginia has hit the big bonanza, other mines might also. Thousands of shares of mining stock trade daily. People make and lose fortunes overnight. 
char women buy the hotels they scrub floors in. Hack drivers give away their carriages to live on Knob Hill. Chinese gambling dens close because Chinese are gambling in mining stocks instead of Fantan. From 1873 to 1882, the Consolidated Virginia yields 65 million in gold and silver and pays 43 million in dividends, more than 4 billion in today's dollars. Here again is Ronald James. The, the deepest shaft here dropped over 3,000 feet, 3,200 feet. That's over a half mile, a straight elevator drop. And keep in mind, this is in 1870, 1880, when most people have never ridden an elevator anywhere. And to, to imagine these people being dropped down over half miles straight down, it, it, it really is something. There was a law on the Nevada books that said it's against the law to talk to a hoist operator. He was the fellow who, who was running the, the spool as it lowered the cages down. And it's, it's illegal to talk to a hoist operator while he's working because if you distract him and he's off by 10 feet, that, that could be fatal to the, to the guys in the cage as they drop down. The Silver Kings all live riotously well and die with multi-million dollar estates. William O'Brien contributes to charities and supports all his close relatives, especially the McDonough and Coleman families of San Francisco. James Flood buys San Francisco real estate, erects numerous buildings, funds new business ventures, and establishes the Nevada Bank. The Nevada Bank later merges with Wells Fargo. He donates large sums to charities. He and his wife and their children live on the fabulous 35-acre estate at Menlo Park. James Fair is elected to the U.S. Senate from Nevada, but spends most of his time accumulating real estate in San Francisco. He becomes the city's largest taxpayer. He also establishes two banks and a railroad. John Mackey forms a telegraph company, lays a cable across the Atlantic, and breaks the Western Union monopoly. He makes more millions. During his lifetime, he gives away more than five million in gifts. He also tears up IOU notes worth more than two million, like for giving 200 million in today's money. When the great fire of October 1875 destroys the central part of Virginia City, including the town's Catholic Church, St. Mary's of the Mountains. Mackey donates much of the money to have St. Mary's rebuilt bigger and better than ever. During a slow period on the Comstock, Mackey secretly pays a Virginia City grocer to supply provisions to any miner out of work. He also is the largest contributor to Sisters Hospital, requiring only that his donations be kept confidential. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien and James Flood demonstrate that Horatio Alger characters were not confined to novels, but were found for real in America. And there you have it, the story of the Silver Kings. And my goodness, a $100,000 investment back then, and then plowing 200000 down more, digging, digging without success, digging again without success, reminding us of so many of the stories we've done in Midland, Texas, and the frackers who are doing the same thing underneath the ground that these Silver Kings were back in the day. This is Lee Habib, the Silver King's story, here on Our American Stories. Where the rain never falls 
The sun never shines It's dark as a dungeon Way down in the mine And we continue with Our American Stories. The Great Escape is an insider's account by Australian writer Paul Brickell of the 1944 mass escape from the German POW camp Stalag Luft III in what is now modern-day Poland. The book was made into the 1963 film The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen. Lieutenant General Albert Clark was also a prisoner of war at the camp. He was a manager of accumulation and hiding of supplies used in the breakout in which 76 POWs escaped the German camp. And now we're going to hear Lieutenant General Albert Clark give a detailed first-hand account of what happened to him in the early years of World War II as second-in-command of the 31st Fighter Group, the first American fighter unit in the European Theater of Operations. My father was in the Army. He was a doctor. And uh, I was, by my family, I was expected to go to West Point from as early as I can remember. I was halfway through my career before I scratched my head and wondered why I didn't become a doctor like my father. But anyway, they encouraged me. And uh, I went to West Point and graduated in 1936 and immediately went into flying training. At that time, of course, it was Army Air Corps. There was no separate Air Force. So I flew in the Army Air Corps until 1947, when the Air Force became a separate service. I was a fighter pilot, and I flew from Selfridge Field, Michigan. I was uh, scheduled to go to Europe as second in command of our fighter group. And uh, initially, we were rushed to the west coast because we were sure the Japanese were intending a landing, in an imminent landing. And while we were out there, it became clear that they weren't going to do this, and we started our operations overseas, in the Far East and in Europe. And my group was divided by experience in two lists. And we flipped a coin to see which would go to the Far East mm. and which would go to Europe. And I was in the unit that went to Europe. Arriving in England at the end of May of 1942, the plan was to give us a Spitfire aircraft which we were delighted to have. It was uh, obviously a famous aircraft and a very good aircraft. And um, as the war progressed, of course, it became better and better for series uh, 9 and 11 and so on with more powerful engines and things of that sort. But we had the 5B. And it so happened that uh, right at that time, the Germans had brought out a new modern fighter that was better than the Spitfire 5B. 
So that's what we faced when we first went into action. Uh, we went into action, I say we, while our young, inexperienced pilots were busy uh, learning to fly the Spitfire, which was very different from our aircraft in a rather important way. You know, British children grow up on bicycles that have brakes on the handles. Our brakes are on the feet. The Spitfire had brakes on the handles. In a few weeks, our commander sent seven of us down south to the action area of England and attached us to British fighter units to get some combat experience. And it was during this period that I was shot down. We had uh, about two weeks of training down there in the Spitfire before we went on what was a really a first-class combat mission, flying over to France and attacking a German fighter airfield. It was Abbeville, which later became famous because the bombers were fearful of the fighters from Abbeville. They called them the Abbeville Kids, and they all had yellow painted noses on their aircraft, so they were easy to identify. Well, that was uh, my mission, and I was shot down as we went down and attacked aircraft taking off from the field. I got halfway home, and I, my engine started to uh, pack, what we call pack up. The temperature of the liquid coolant went up to the highest point, and the liquid cool engine did not operate very long if it lost its coolant. It would usually catch fire. I was out in the middle of uh, the, actually the ocean south of the narrow point where, which starts the, the uh, English Channel. And I guess I was about 50 miles from England and that still it was all land was out of sight. So I prepared to bail out. It was a a very much more effective way to save yourself than trying to ditch a, a Spitfire. The Spitfire, because it had a big bulky uh, coolant unit radiator under one wing, immediately plunged for the bottom when it ditched and usually took its pilots with it, unless you were very nimble. So I had long since made up my mind that if I had a problem over the water, I would bail out. So I went up to 10,000 feet and went through what we call the emergency drill. I uh, abandoned my helmet and unhooked an oxygen mask. I, I turned on my emergency beeper, which they could hear and, and plot my position with. And I gave a mayday and uh, reached up to to uh, jettison my canopy and then jettisoned uh, a little ball on the end of a flexible wire broke off in my hand and I was unable to get the canopy open. At that point I was uh, desperately looking for options because ditching was bad enough but ditching with uh, trapped in the cockpit would not have much chance.
So at 10,000 feet, I could see faintly land on the horizon, which I thought was north. I was completely disoriented with my struggle of trying to get the canopy loose, but I figured that was north. The compasses on the floor in the Spitfire, I had my feet up on the instrument panel because I thought I was going to ditch at any moment, and I wanted to cushion the shock. So I was at about 10 feet off the water with a sputtering engine and my feet on the instrument panel going what I thought was north towards a faint strip of land which I hoped was England. Well, it turned out to be France. I didn't know that until after I managed to reach the beach. I zooped up over the, the, uh, the cliff and landed in the first field, which was a big wheat field, perfectly ideal for my crash landing with the wheels up. And I was still wasn't sure whether it was France or England until immediately a German fighter buzzed me. As soon as he did that, my heart sank. I knew I was in the France. And I was surrounded by a flak battery, and they simply got up out of their positions and accepted my surrender. I had no way to, no place to go. So uh, that's the way I became a POW. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of Lieutenant General Albert Clark. And for those of you who have ever seen the 1963 classic, The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen, well, this is the real thing. This isn't a movie, what he lived through, what these men lived through. The Great Escape with Albert Clark continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories. And when we left off last, Albert Clark had been shot down while flying a combat mission. After surviving a crash landing in France, Clark was now in Nazi-controlled territory and was quickly apprehended. The people who accepted my surrender and marched me off acted like they did this every day. It was absolutely routine. And, of course, I was decently treated. A car came and picked me up and took me to a place where I had to wait out the rest of the day under guard. And uh, when I got out of my airplane, of course, I was bareheaded, and I'm redheaded. And the pilot of the airplane that was buzzing me and who later claimed he shot me down, which I don't think is correct, was redheaded. The group commander who knew this after it, during the afternoon, arranged for me to go to their officers club at saint Omer, which was another famous fighter base, and meet uh, three or four of the pilots, including the one, the red-headed non-commissioned officer who claimed he shot me down. It was an interesting event, and under other circumstances, I would have enjoyed it. Uh, they offered me a glass of wine, which I refused, and a cigarette which I accepted. 
And it seemed to me that they were all very anxious to find out where I'd been, where I came from, where my airplane was hit. They were trying to get credit for having shot me down. Nobody knew. And to this day, they're not, they're not sure who shot me down. It was so organized that, in the first place, there was a very skilled, knowledgeable senior man in charge of all escape activities. You couldn't just run out and run over the wire and bump into a guy who was coming from the other direction. It was all coordinated. And we had factories that made civilian clothes, made compasses, made maps, and intelligence people who got the schedules of the trains and found out what the local manufacturing organizations, how they signed passes for leave, which we could pretend like we were one of, and who signed them and what his signature looked like. So that the intelligence part of forgery for passes, gate, car, gate passes, train passes and so on, was a very highly skilled business. And uh, what we couldn't handle ourselves, of course, we attempted to get by bribery. There were always a few Germans who were willing to take a risk, and it was a severe risk, for chocolates, soap, and uh, coffee. We quickly found that the only way to get out of it, how to escape, was over the wire, through the wire, or under the wire, in other words, tunneling, unless you had a balloon. So the most popular method, of course, was tunneling. And in the period of time from April of 42 to January of 45, the Germans found at least 100 tunnels that were being dug. Only three tunnels were successful. The first one got two men out, the second one got three men out, and the third one, which was the Great Escape Tunnel, got 76 men out. The strategy was they may find one, and if they did, we would pretend that that's the end of everything, and we had lost our only tunnel. But we would continue, of course, digging on the others. All the, the barracks rooms had a little coal stove in the corner with a pipe that went into a chimney, and it was on a slab of concrete. In this instance, the, in fact, the one, the one that was a successful escape tunnel, we cut out the slab of concrete and replaced it with our own, with a hinge at the back. We even put the tile back on it. You could lift it, move, move the stove off, even if it had fire in it, lift it, and the shaft went right down to 30 feet. The Germans had seismographs, listening devices, all around the camp in the ground, under the wire, at about seven to nine feet in depth. And we simply estimated that if we went down 30 feet, they couldn't hear it, couldn't hear us digging. 
the only way to navigate in that tunnel was with the magnetic compass. And the Great Escape Tunnel went magnetic north. And by we, we made little bubble levels so that we could keep from climbing or diving. And with a string, you could keep it straight, a long string, with our, or with lights at each end. It was, the escape tunnel was over 100 yards long, so navigation was a very important factor. The biggest problem, of course, was the sand out of the tunnels. You have three tunnels being dug at the same time. The, the cubic yardage of sand that came out of those tunnels was extraordinary. And the camp was built in a forest, pine forest, so that the normal surface was dark. You had to go down about six or eight inches before you started getting yellow sand. So we couldn't bring the stuff out and just dump it. We hid it in the gardens. We filled the walls of the barracks with it. We put it in the attics of the, of the barracks. And it still wasn't enough. So we finally made a big sports area and got everybody in the cab doing sports stuff kicking the surface up till it, down to the yellow sand. Once we got down to the yellow sand, our penguins, who were the men who had bags of sand under their overcoats and in their trousers with drawstrings at the bottom, would walk over to the athletic area, pull the strings, shuffle the sand in, and go back for more. The Germans would even had tree stands outside the camp with big field glasses. And they eventually got to the point where they knew that the tunnel, the tunnel, the Great Escape Tunnel, was out of Block 104. And they searched it and searched it and searched it, couldn't find it. And they watched everybody who came out of that block looking for people carrying sand. We had surveyors and they tried to estimate the distance out of the north edge of our camp through an outside camp that had uh, the jailhouse and the dispensary and a coal shed and then beyond us a second wire over a dirt road and a space into the woods and they tried to estimate where how far it was to the woods and nobody knew until the night they were committed and the tunnel was full of people. When they cracked through the last crust, they were 10 feet short of the woods, which meant they were fairly close to the guards who fortunately were looking the other way, looking in to the camp, but were so close that those who emerged from the tunnel had to be controlled and signaled when the guards were looking the other way and the outside stroller guards were at the far end of their their strolling path. Then one would go and get into the woods. It was a major event for the Germans and Hitler was not amused. It was a typical German goon panic, we would, we would call it, all that night all the next day, counting 
rich to find out how many were missing and who they were. That took a long time. And it was a terribly cold day. They were out in the snow all day long, being matched against their their ID photo. Then the Gestapo came in. They sacked the commandant, put him in jail, court-martialed him, and he was a very fine old gentleman, a senior colonel. He had been distinguished in the First War. And uh, he had tried his best to get the get us, all of us, to realize that tunneling and escape was becoming extremely dangerous because of the fact that Hitler had lost his sense of humor. And the Gestapo had no sense of humor, and the SS had no sense of humor, and that you were going to get shot. He tried his best, and he tried to keep the camps as comfortable as he could under the theory that if he made us comfortable enough, we wouldn't want to escape. He couldn't, he was tragically wrong, of course. And you've been listening to Lieutenant General Albert Clark, and what a story, folks. It's not a movie. It's real life. In the end, 76 men escaped, 73 were recaptured, and 50 of those were shot by the Gestapo. Three made it home safely. After Albert Clark was liberated, he stayed in the Air Force until his retirement in 1974 and passed away in 2010. If you'd like to know more about his story, you can find his book anywhere books are sold. It's called 33 Months as a POW in Stalag Luft Three. World War II airman tells his story. This is Our American Stories.